Beastie Now, episode 504, Release the Beast. Recording was done on the 12th of April 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Uh, welcome. We have a fresh episode for you recorded in our microphones into your ears. And we have uh, cause for celebration here. Uh, as every release is in the BSD world, this one is FreeBSD 13.2, which is out finally. Yeah, lots of uh, big and small changes in this one. Uh, you know, Beehive has gained the ability to have Vertio input device emulation, which has allowed you to inject mouse and keyboard events directly into the guest. The new ZFS keys startup script is there, uh, which can take care of mm -hmm. auto-loading ZFS encryption keys. Uh, GrowFS startup script now adds a swap partition while expanding the root file system if possible and uh, if one did not exist previously this is primarily useful for the sd card type raw images and there's uh, plenty of other changes you can see in the release notes um, but a uh, good maintenance release of freebsd but also includes a lot of features uh, and stuff i know a lot of stuff got backported here uh, for this release to make sure that uh, all the latest stuff is in this prime release of FreeBSD. Yeah. So, uh, uh, including the latest version of OpenSSH 9.2. Ah, yeah. And a couple of things uh, that people have wanted for a long time, like the WireGuard driver is now available. Yep. And, uh, oh, it's like snapshots on UFS file systems when running with journal soft updates. That's a thing still, right? Snapshots. And, uh, yeah. Uh, big one. Uh, Beehive and its VMM kernel module now can support more than 16 vCPUs in the guest. It's no longer uh, compile time tunable. You can actually uh, adjust it um, with a sysctl and be able to have as many additional uh, vCPUs as you have real CPUs. Oh yeah, that will help uh, people get more virtualization going and running more yeah, powerful well, especially things in there. Uh, you know, even your desktop now can have 16 actual CPUs in it. Uh, yeah. And so being able to have a VM with more than that uh, will be a big deal. I, think I remember a long time ago, custom compiling Beehive to up that limit from 16 to 20 for a 20 core machine. Uh, but now, you know, where 80 and 128 and even more core machines are pretty common now, uh, <laughs> suddenly VMs make a lot of sense there. Yeah. Also, the address base layout randomization aslr is enabled by default for 64-bit executables and there's instructions in the release notes on how to disable it on a specific application if you uh, need to be able to debug it or something a workaround has also been implemented for a hardware page and validation problem on intel adder lake the 12th generation and likely affecting raptor lake the 13th generation hybrid cpus the bug can lead to file system corruption with ufs and ms dosfs and probably other memory corruption when the slower e cores automatically use uh, a different method of page validation uh, with the workaround. Nice. Now, also, the uh, new uh, new kernel configuration knob called Split Kernel Debug, uh, which allows controlling the split of kernel and module debug data into separate standalone files. 
this interacts with the without kernel symbols uh, build option, which operates differently than it did with previous uh, releases in the 13 branch. It now controls only installing uh, the debug data. The default with kernel symbols and with split kernel debug allows the kernel and modules without debug data to be installed in the slash boot, and the standalone debugging files end up in user lib debug, so it's not filling up your small boot partition if you have it as a separate partition. Oh yeah, well, very welcome change there, because who wants to get their boot partition uh, too full? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> also, the state of the ARM 64-bit uh, Linux ABI is brought up to parity with the AMD 64. Uh, so running Linux ARM binaries uh, will work mostly as well as it does on the regular x86 binaries. There's mm -hmm. also been updates to the Intel uh, NIC driver, the EM, uh, includes supporting the full range of received buffer sizes on the newer chips like the i350. Um, Amazon's ENA, Elastic Network Adapter, has been updated to the latest version. Uh, it also supports um, hardware performance counters for the 12th and 13th gen Intel CPUs. Uh, and the Intel IWL Wi-Fi driver has also been brought up to date, uh, which I know is a thing a lot of people were waiting for that to get into a release. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's high time. And then lots of other additions uh, to the kernel programming interface to better support porting Linux drivers to FreeBSD. Also good, right? There's uh, more compatibility happening. Also fixed uh, a problem that caused NFS server hangs having to do with TCP selective acknowledgement, and that's been fixed. And lots and lots more, including like uh, Bennett was mentioning, the WireGuard kernel module is now integrated and part of FreeBSD. Uh, and they've also updated the kernel TLS offload to have full support for TLS 1.3. There's also new Netlink network configuration, although it's not completely there. It's just a module for now, but it's going to be expanding more in future releases. So keep an eye on that, Netlink and uh, third-party yeah. routing programs. Netlink is especially interesting uh, as just a generic notification API. Uh, and I plan to get to look at it a bit more for doing ZFS notifications via that same interface. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like when devices disappear or come back for some reason <laughs> in the pool. Yep. Also, uh, two kernel routing table modules uh, from DBDK, uh, LPM4 and LPM6, are now available as loadable modules. Uh, they provide optimized routing functions for hosts with very large routing tables. So the default Radix tree still makes sense for most hosts that have a routing table of, you know, 10 or 20 entries or something. Uh, but if it's something that's going to have like a full BGP feed, um, then the the module from DBDK will provide much better performance. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've had that selectable FIB lookup mechanism in FreeBSD for a while, but it's now uh, in a release so that people can start using it. Yep. There's also a section about deprecation. So people will probably lose some of the one, uh, some older features that they might have used in the past, but not so much in recent years yeah like uh, drivers for isa sound cards i, I don't think uh, that's something people have been having to use <laughs> these were the black uh you know slot ins in your main board remember <laughs> yeah very long time ago ah but also here the venom and the telnet daemon so if you still rely on telnet First of all, we're sorry. And second of all, there will be something in ports, I guess, but not in the... 
And basis. specifically, this is the server. The Telnet yeah. client is still there, but if you want to run a Telnet server, you have to get it from ports because yeah. Security. what are you doing anyway? <laughs> <laughs> this is not the solution you're looking for. Um, yeah, so be aware of these things that may happen uh, in FreeBSD 14 when that comes out, so you're not uh, completely surprised. And there we have it. That's pretty much it. So we should thank or give a special thanks to the release engineer who filled in for the uh, release engineer who got a little uh, sidetracked here. Colin Percival was the one who did this release. And everyone, uh, a big thanks to supporting him and him especially since they had to do a couple of beta releases in between, figuring out some issues that were coming up during the release cycle that they didn't want to put into it. Yeah, and I, there was a, an extra release candidate because of an issue with suspend resume on laptops. Yeah, so we, they didn't want to put that into the release and just want to have a couple more days to figure out what is wrong and get that fixed. So that has been done and that caused a bit of a delay, but now we have the release here. And I guess a couple of people have done the release already and have a run FreeBSD update uh, dash R13.2. Okay, let's uh, move on to our next item, which is using Dtrace to find block sizes of ZFS, NFS, and iSCSI. Uh, so this may sound like a Clara article, but it's not uh, from them this time. It's from Axiant.com, from their blog. And, um, yeah, oh yeah, they, they say, or they write, a member of the storage team, Cloud Engineer Goran Mekic, hopefully that's his proper name pronounced, uh, who you probably know from a popular... Um, Jail manager uh, shared that documentation and books on DTrace were not terribly helpful to him in finding out what function he should trace. Goran did what he should have been extremely happy if he could refer to a blog post like the one below before starting this task. So he offered to share the process because it is more important than the measurement itself. So in the spirit of sharing, you can download these steps. There's a link in the blog and walk through Goran's instructions on finding block sizes of ZFS, NFS, and iSCSI using the DTrace. So the first step is finding the right probe, right? There's a couple of probes available in DTrace. So if you do DTrace-L, you can find them all. Then you grab for the specific subsystem you're using, in this case ZFS, and then for writes. They were looking at ZFS writes, and there are two they found for the function boundary tracing, ZFS write entries, and ZFS write returns. So when that function is entered and when that is uh, returning, that is one way to fire the probe. Then let's find that function in the source code. To reduce time of search, it is recommended to use rip grab instead of grab. Yeah, that's personal choice. And they found something in syscontrib, open ZFS module, slash ZFS, slash ZFS underscore vnops.c. Okay. Now that they searched for files where ZFS write starts with the beginning of the line, right? That is because FreeBSD coding style is uh, in that particular. So you have the uh, return type, the integer in this case, and then there's the uh, function name. And then searching only for lines that start with ZFS write reduces the number of entries returned by RipGrab. The first entry in the array is ZFS UIO underscore T. In most cases, when you un when you see underscore C or underscore, underscore T type, you are actually dealing with a type def struct, right? Kind of construct. Uh, and so there you need to dig a little bit deeper. But yeah, and so it goes through how he decoded all of that. But in the end, he wrote a dtrace that looked at, you know, every time somebody calls the ZFS write function, they're passing us one of these UIO structs. And one of the members of that is basically how many bytes are left to be written. and by 
feeding that into dtrace, he could then get a nice graph showing us how big each of the writes were. Uh, and so by running dd of dev random to a file and setting the block size to 16k, then when he ran the do trace, you could see that every one of the writes was 16k, as you would expect. And so then looking at doing the same thing, but with NFS. And when we did an NFS mount, he specifically set the read and write size to 8k. And so when we figure out the right function for that and trace it, and we see again that all of the calls to that function are 8k. Yep, and that's what the system can tell you, the live system, you have to uh, remember. And this is what they can tell you, and that you can use in tuning or finding a bug or where your performance is suffering. And they do the, the same for the iSCSI daemon, ctl.conf. And that is a similar way of figuring out what kind of writes happening there. Cool, straightforward. And actually, like, really, I've never used Dtrace before. What do I do or how can I find the thing I'm looking for? And that's kind of a nice way of starting. Yeah. I have a simple question. I just want to know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> how big are the writes that are coming in to my Zvol? Uh, and if they're all the same size, that's probably great. It means, you know, that's probably the vol block size you want. But, you know, depending on your use case, it's likely that they're actually spread across a whole bunch of different sizes. And then, uh, you know, now you're looking at this histogram and trying to actually make decisions. Yep. Okay. Very nice. So in the news roundup, we have another release for you. This is Midnight BSD 3.0.1 has been released. Okay, what do they have in store for us? Uh, building off last month's release of Midnight BSD 3.0 for this desktop-focused 3BSD fork operating system, uh, the 3.0.1 update is now available. Uh, that is because this XFCE using desktop has seen several fixes, now the minor refinements with today's Midnight BSD, and of course the security fixes and uh, of cleaning ups of rc.d service scripts. The announcement is short, uh, but uh, nevertheless important. Uh, 3.0.1 was tagged in our Git repository and we've started building ISOs for it. It includes several security updates such as OpenSSL 1.1.1.t, right, that's the number or the <laughs> version they have now, do S6.3 perch level 9. A fix for a Telnet D vulnerability. It also includes some cleanup work on RC.D scripts, fixes a periodic script that were incorrectly around NTPD, and the restoring of msearch and mport DB backups. We also updated the mport to 2.2.9, which fixed the mport mirror list command. All right, cool. Nice to see that there's a healthy uh, environment or a healthy choice of uh, desktops or BSD desktop uh, distributions around, right? Not just. Uh, the one. This next one is a bit more practical because I think not many people know about this, even though I've been using Z uh, ZFS SSH for a long time. And this is how you can close a stale SSH connection. Yeah, especially when the other side has just kind of died on you. <laughs> for whatever reason, yeah. Yeah, so suppose you're connected to a remote host with SSH, and after a while, the SSH station goes stale. The terminal is unresponsive, and no key press seems to take effect. There might be something with the network, or the right host is restarting, or maybe your machine is being in hibernation and the network session is lost, or whatever. Uh, the first solution you may come to mind is just close the terminal emulator and create another one. But there's a better way, and that is the SSH escape sequence. 
Before I show the trick, uh, we can take a quick detour to the kind of hidden feature that is implemented in most SSH clients. Built into the SSH client are multiple hidden commands that can be triggered with a so-called escape sequence. Uh, these commands can be accessed by a combination of the tilde character uh, and then some other command. Um, and usually it requires on a new line. So sometimes you want to enter, then tilde and the character. So the first one we're talking about today is tilde dot, which will terminate the session. But tilde question mark will usually print out a list of what the options are. Uh, so you can, you know, uh, tilde capital B will send a break to the remote system. Uh, or uh, most SSH clients support tilde capital R to request rekeying. So it'll... Uh, rotate the encryption key which it normally does every so many gigabytes to make sure that uh, we're not using the same key for too much data uh, but you can also do tilde and then the the hashtag symbol and that will list all the forwarded connections so if you're doing a bunch of ssh forwarding you're like i don't remember which ports i'm forwarding uh to this machine you can get that list and so on and then the important one is actually tilde tilde which sends just one tilde to the other side. If you happen to be SSHing to somewhere and then SSHing from there to somewhere else, what if you want to kill the middle uh, one? Yeah, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So then it's enter tilde tilde dot, <laughs> and that'll send just tilde dot to the second SSH the session in the chain. Or three tildes and a dot will send it to the third one in the chain and so on. <laughs> and that's can be really important uh, because this same thing works, for example, if you're using IPMI tool to do the serial over LAN. So I've SSH to a server that's in the data center, and then I'm using IPMI tool to get to the console of the machine. If I want to kill the IPMI tool, I need to send tilde dot. But if I just send tilde dot, I'm going to kill my local SSH client, not the IPMI tool. Yeah. And so you want tilde tilde dot, mm -hmm. uh, and so on. If you've ever had to deal with escaping in the shell, this is the same thing. <laughs> Uh, except for hopefully you don't have to uh, escape the tilds too, but uh, it doesn't compound as badly. You can just tilt, tilt, dot instead of three to in, in order to do the right thing. But uh, it can be You're probably doing it wrong the first time. We've all been there. <laughs> but it's at least something better than trying to close the window or throwing the computer out the window for not getting to the other machine right or having to start another terminal and then oh, yeah. kill the ssh client uh, uh and things like that <laughs> it's just no fun uh, uh they also note that if you're using a nordic keyboard layout uh and you don't know where the tilde key is apparently it's alt gur plus the caret symbol and then space oh okay which seems like a lot of faff to type tilde but yeah you need three hands for that um yeah <laughs> So, but that, but yeah, uh, super useful and applies to more than just SSH. Yeah, so at least a couple of colleagues didn't knew about this when I showed it to them, um, and so yeah, I thought we would cover it here. Yeah, I showed it to somebody too recently, and I don't remember who it was, but it's definitely one of those things. that's like everybody's needed it, but has everybody actually always seen it? <laughs> And while we're on the subject of SSH, we can also show you another trick to impress other people even more. Maybe they knew this one, but we can uh, at least try. How to automatically add identity to the SSH authentication agent. That is over at sleeplessbeastie.eu, which is not too much of a BSD uh, blog, but it has weekly or at least sometimes daily uh, uh, stuff about 
any kind of computing topics. So I found or Unix related ones that I found interesting. And this one is right up our SSH alley. And that is about how to add it, automatically add the identity file used by the SSH client to the OpenSSH authentication agent. So for example, you uh, first you look at your SSH config. Now you find you have your little uh, entries for the host names or your match user def uh, directives where you can say, oh, if this user is used, then use this identity file for any kind of connection. So if you do SSH add dash lowercase l, it says the agent has no identities at this point. Okay, then you do an SSH to that machine and it asks for the passphrase. Okay, so all fine and good. If you do another SSH add after logging out again, it says the agent still has no identities. This is because the directive add keys to agent is set to false by default. And if you want to add this one, you need to add this to your either to the host definition for a specific key or to your user match directive. And then when you do the first connection to the machine, it asks you for the passphrase to the key, of course. But in addition, it stores it in your SSH agent so that you next time when you do SSH add dash L, it lists that there. And of course, uses it again next time you connect to that machine without having you enter either the passphrase or the uh, password. So that is useful. So it adds these as you go along and SSH to various boxes as long as there is um, the identity file available. Yeah, this would be super helpful for my Git repos, which often have a separate key than my normal SSH key, uh, because that makes sense there. Um, and I don't necessarily want to load up my key agent with all of those every time I start yeah. my shell. But when I've typed in the password once, I don't want to type it again for the rest of this session, please. It's just mm. Git. <laughs> yeah, we have these occasional connections to other machines and we have these daily always have this uh, connection where yeah. every box needs to have it. So uh, yeah, that's definitely a good thing to have. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. We get questions to our feedback at bsdnow.tv address, and we're happy to cover them here on the show if this is something uh, that is not just, oh, check out this link, or have you seen this blog post? Uh, even though those are fine as well. Definitely send us those. But sometimes we have questions. And this first one is from Dan about 
ZFS, and that's why we're covering it today, goes like the following. Hi, Alan and Benedict. I was getting concerned you might be running low on ZFS questions, so I thought I'd step in and help combat any potential drought. Excellent choice. That is definitely good in this one. So here goes. I recently had to restore a ZFS-based server with about 800 home deers. Ooh, each with its own data set. Nice. But most of the directories got deleted somehow. I ended up restoring them all from scratch using Syncoid, which took over four days. Ooh, wow. Uh, what I would have liked to have had when I noticed all the home deers were missing was a script to automatically roll back all of the datasets within the slash home dataset by a given amount. I used Sanoid to create the snapshots, so it would have to support rolling back snapshots created using Sanoid's naming format. I can probably write this myself, but I'd prefer to use an existing tested script such a thing exists. Are you aware of such a script? Great to see the show is still going after all these years. So for that one, um, I don't know that such a script exists because this isn't something that you're going to do every day. It's, uh, and the fact that it should just be like three or four lines of shell script. Uh, so what you can do, so ZFS list supports uh, a mode with the capital H flag where it's the it aligns the output specifically for scripts. So instead of making all the columns line up and pretty for humans, it separates each column with a tab so that you can just uh, parse it really easily. So if you just did ZFS list uh, dash capital H and then dash O name, because that's the only thing you want out of the list, and then dash R whatever data set your home directory is under, that's going to list just the the home directory uh, data set itself and all the children of that. Uh, and you can use dash D instead of dash R and then a number if you want to limit how deep you want it to go. If, if there are sub data sets you don't want to touch or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, so if you do that, you'll get a list of every data set that was in under home. And then you're literally just doing a for loop of four data set in then like dollar sign open round brackets the zfs command do for each of those you just zfs rollback data set name at the name of the snapshot because i think you want the same snapshot for all 800 of those directories of you know yesterday at this time when things weren't broken mm -hmm. and then done and so that three line shell script would roll back every one of those uh data sets to the same uh point the same snapshot um, the fact that you can't do this recursively with ZFS the same way that you can create snapshots of every one of these home directories annoyed me in the past. Um, and the suggestion there was you could do this as a ZFS channel program, which is a little Lua script that does it. The main advantage of doing it that way is it would move all 800 home directories back to the snapshot as one transaction instead of 800 separate transactions, which would make it faster and atomic. But um, you know, at worst case, you're talking about it taking five seconds instead of two minutes or something. Not four days. Yeah. Uh, but either way, it's not four yeah. days. Um, so yeah, I don't know why you would have done the a full re-replication with Syncoid if the snapshots were there and you could just roll them back. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think the main reason why you haven't found a script is that this isn't something that people have to do on a regular basis. And when they do, it is possible to write a, a shell script one-liner to do it. Uh, but also, if you're just using some one-liner you don't understand, it's very easy to 
accidentally erased all the data in all your yeah, home directories with this. 800 so, people are very angry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. ZFS rollback is a, a pretty destructive command. It throws away everything that's changed since that snapshot, yeah. uh, which is fine when that's what you want it to do. And not when you thought that's what you wanted to do, but not what you actually wanted to do. Yeah, you have a very bad day then. But yes, uh, it'd be very nice if somebody wrote the channel program for that and contributed it to uh, the OpenZFS repo. There's a little contrib directory of uh, a bunch of handy uh, channel programs. Mm. Because sadly, right now, ZFS rollback does have a dash R flag, uh, but it doesn't mean recursive in the way you think it does. Uh, it, it won't go and roll back data sets to that snapshot at that and all of its children that dash r just means it's okay to delete other snapshots that are in the way yeah. so if you're rolling back to like four snapshots Ouch. ago normally zfs will say i can't do that you have to delete the three snapshots that are in the Be way careful. first yeah. and zfs rollback dash r will say delete whatever snapshots are in the way until you get I back know what to I'm the doing one here yeah mm. yeah but again you have to realize you're throwing away all that data yeah. and that if you're not sure that's what you want to do uh, a ZFS clone might be the better way to do it of, uh, you know, I want to keep oh, the damaged one over here on the side, but get everybody back to working by making them clones or something. Yeah. Uh, do you know out of hand, this is a bit uh, on a sidetrack here, does Sanoid work with when I limit the number of snapshots that I can overall take on a certain data set? There's a snap limit. So like if if you set the snap limit in ZFS... Yeah. Uh, I expect that Sanoid doesn't really look at that. It's kind of your fault if you configure Sanoid to make more snapshots than the right. limit. Yeah, so it doesn't uh, look at that. And what's the top value that I could do? Yeah, okay. Makes right. Because in general, you specify the the how many snapshots you want to keep in your Sanoid config. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And it's going to try to do that, not the limit you set in the other. Partly because looking up that limit for each data set before taking the snapshot uh, would make it a lot slower than just going from the config and knowing that I just want to create snapshots all of these places. Yeah. Have these policies configured in one place, not just multiple. Mm -hmm. Well, mostly just looking it up manually in ZFS for each data set will be a lot slower. We'll slow down the process versus, mm -hmm. yeah, just the config file says create a snapshot on all of these data sets. Okay. So yeah, hopefully Dan has got a couple of uh, ideas and maybe someone else who's listening has done this already. It just didn't... Uh, bother to publish it yet so we'd definitely be happy to connect you uh, when you send this to feedback at psdnow.tv and otherwise um, if you have a blog post about it we'll be happy to cover that in the future as well so next up is Matt with a thanks for us and Matt writes hey my name is Matt and I'm a 20 year Linux user currently in the process of migrating to BSD I appreciate your podcast thank you I used to listen back in 2016 on Jupiter Broadcasting ah it's been a while yeah I have a podcast, but have not produced an episode in nearly two years. I'm also a single dad of three. You just gave me the answer why. Um, so, and you got your priorities straight here. So I don't always have a chance to do a podcast, but I'm very much looking forward to talking about BSD as well as GNU and Linux when I'm able to do a podcast again myself. I just wanted to tell you that I have started listening to your show again and find your BSD knowledge to be appreciated and of great value to me while migrating. Uh, I'm using FreeBSD and have found it to be overall very familiar. The handbook has been a great guide and the built-in tools for editing, rc.conf and other files is very nice as well. I'm currently using rc3 because I'm using a N5095 based system to get started. I'm using GNOME Wayland and I'm very happy with the massive amount of familiar applications. 
I still need to do Wayland myself one day. <clears throat> Going back to the uh, <laughs> feedback, I will be honest, however, that over the years I've gained an appreciation for doing some tasks in a GUI and doing them from the CLI is fine, but I have moments when I find myself thinking of a GUI before thinking of a CLI for a task. I've also considered an Elomos computing option, but BSD beats all alternatives, hands down on the desktop. Anyway, I just wanted to say thank you for your show and I will stay tuned. Yeah, great. Thank you. That's nice feedback. I mean, you could always just say I did a longer uh, podcasting pause and I just start over and you don't have to have the crazy schedule every week that we have, right? You can do a monthly one. That's yeah. also uh, I still find myself preferring the, the command line over the GUI for everything. Mostly because I can just type a lot faster than I can click. <laughs> yeah, or you just open multiple windows on the GUI multiple terminals just yes if, if i have a gui it's mostly just to manage a bunch of terminal yeah and a web browser you know I'm, I'm 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 never going to be one of those people that tries to do their email at the command line uh or yeah. or browsing at the command line but as far as like actually getting any work done i've just administrative stuff i don't yeah. know Typing. The fact that I can rattle off how to do that loop over every, all 800 data sets in ZFS off the top of my head. Yeah, it's saying something. For most problems, that's where I think first. You, you just and do even it so when like doing a lot of text, like I had uh, all these text files we collected of benchmark and JSON I put in, like I can write a little shell script like this big, uh, like 10 lines. It's going to loop over it all and turn it all into a CSV in the right shape, which I can then open in a GUI to draw pretty graphs. But I'm going to do all the data work on the command line because I want sort, awk, grep, uh, unique, etc. And get it all massaged the right way and then take it to the GUI. Because while I could manually move all the data around in the GUI, it would take a lot longer than making all my shell friends do the work yeah, for me. Finding it all the options in, in Excel or whatever you have, it's... It's someone else's workflow, not what we are using. We're using pipes and simple commands, cutting, connecting them together. Um, but yeah, everyone is open to use what they like. We're not judging here. And if it gets the task done quick for you, that's all good for us. Yeah, so continuing on your journey. And um, yeah, if you have the time, maybe you produce another podcast about BSD, then let us know. We'll be happy to link to it and give it a listen so we can... Uh, listen to you just like you listen to us cool thank you that pretty much wraps up this episode for today thanks everyone for listening and sending us anything uh, content wise and uh, make sure that you uh, yeah should we mention our BSD recording at BSD can one more time yep special episode yep so we're doing a live recording at BSD can uh, which is happening in mid May in uh, Ottawa the usual place and there will be a live recording there. I hope this, they publish the schedule soon or by the time this one comes up. They did it last oh, night, did? so we should do oh, that cool. in the next episode. Okay, so yeah, we have a spot. You can go into the room and have us uh, listen a whole, uh, do a whole live episode and maybe have some audience participation there. We're not sure yet how that will work out. Audio recording uh, notwithstanding, but uh, it will be a special one. So stay tuned for that. And it will, of course, be part of a regular show recording if you can't make it to ottawa then you will have it later once it's all uh edited cool that's pretty much it for this week thanks for listening and we'll be back with another one next week